Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen. Lord, wash us and cleanse us with your precious blood. Amen. Lord, we just ask you to pour out your blessing tonight. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would grant us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Amen. Lord, we ask you to enlighten the eyes of our heart. Amen. Lord, make your heart's desire our heart's desire. Amen. Lord, we want to be here to turn the age. Amen. Tonight, we reconsecrate ourselves to just give you our entire being. Amen. Lord, make us dispensational instruments. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So the title of the conference uh, during this Labor Day weekend is The Men Who Turn the Age. Can we all declare the title of this conference together with an exercise spirit? The Men Who Turn the Age. And, and certainly the title is called The Men Who Turn the Age. But we all know that at this sisters conference, each and every one of you as sisters are eligible to participate as a dispensational instrument to turn the age. Those of you who want to volunteer themselves, to consecrate themselves, although you might not realize that you can do it or maybe you realize that you can't do it, whatever your situation is, those of you who want to turn the age, give me a strong amen. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen. We are here to turn the age. Amen. Now, just as a brief recap before we get into tonight's meeting, um, I just want to touch on some concepts that we had gone over in the previous meetings. And for those of you who are sitting straight away, you may be able to see this, and I'll adjust the board again for those on the sides who can't necessarily see this. But we start with the Nazarite vow. And related to the Nazarite vow are three critical aspects. First, our consecration. Second, our companions. And third, our heart. These three aspects that we've covered in the previous messages ultimately lead to our sight, or what we see. And what we see will affect our understanding of the divine history as hidden within the human history which is the topic of tonight's meeting. Those of you on this side, this is what the board looks like. Starts with the Nazarite vow. Breaks off into our consecration, our companions, our hearts, and ultimately, it leads to our sight. Amen. Again, this side. Beginning with the Nazarite vow, our consecration, our companions, our heart, and then it leads to our sight. So with the Nazarite vow, we understand that a Nazarite vow requires us of only one thing. It doesn't require us to be superheroes, to be those who know that they can do it all. What a Nazarite vow requires at its most basic essence is a consecration. Amen. It's a voluntary choice within our hearts to say, Lord, I don't know what it is that you will require of me, I don't know if I can carry this out. But one thing I do know, that I want what you want. And for this very reason, I consecrate myself to you. Amen. This is the Nazarite vow. And we've talked about the Nazarite vow, how the Nazarite vow, uh, a Nazarite exhibits four characteristics. First, that a Nazarite separates or abstains from worldly enjoyment. That's a very tough thing to say, right? All of us here today, we're in the world, and it is difficult to abstain from worldly enjoyment. So we ask ourselves, can we be a Nazarite? Are we qualified to be a Nazarite? Second, a Nazarite 
is someone who can be subjected to Christ as the head. Can we always follow Christ as our head? Do we always follow our parents who Christ has placed here on this earth as His representatives to govern us, to watch over us, to help us? Are we subjected to them? We, to be honest, we probably can, can say that we can't do it. And third, a Nazarite. The third characteristic of a Nazarite is one who doesn't engage in natural affections. How many of you here have best friends? I certainly do. You know, it's difficult to abstain from a natural affection because we may find someone that we like and we enjoy this person. We share common interests from a worldly perspective and we get along real well and this person is our best friend. But a Nazarite is someone that can abstain from natural affection because natural affection can bring in death. And fourth, a Nazarite is someone, in our experience for us today, who is always exercised in their spirit. We know that it's important to exercise our spirit. Praise the Lord for our spirit. Amen. But in reality, are we always able to be exercising our spirit? Are you constantly exercising your spirit as a Nazarite does and as a Nazarite must? Well, most likely your answers to these four qualifications or criteria of being a Nazarite are no. And they're no for me as well, so don't feel bad. But one thing gives us comfort and should give us comfort, and it's the fact that to be a Nazarite just requires us to voluntarily give ourselves to the Lord. The Lord will enable us to work out these four characteristics of a Nazarite. So it's not impossible, sisters, at your age to be a Nazarite. Daniel was a Nazarite. His three companions were Nazarites at a very young age. According to the Bible history, we don't know their exact age, but they could have been as young as 15 years old. And in fact, verses in the book of Daniel refer to Daniel and his three companions as children. Do you consider yourselves children? Okay, good. Some of you do. When I was a teenager, someone said, you're a child. I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm a teenager. You know, and then I'm a, I'm a young adult. Uh, but the Bible refers to Daniel and his companions as children. And they were able to turn the age as children, possibly as 15 years old uh, children, as young people in this corrupt, evil land. They were able to turn the age. What about you all? from 15 to 18, maybe 14 to 18, 14 to 19. But within this age range, you all fall. So you are all capable of participating as a dispensational instrument to turn the age. You are all eligible to be the Nazarites. Now with the Nazarite vow, what are three things that are involved? We first talked about our consecration. It just requires us to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. That just means us to pray. Even a simple prayer, a simple prayer tonight, or even during this meeting right now. Lord, I just give myself to be a Nazarite. Lord, I just consecrate myself to you Amen. for your sake. Part of this involves us seeing that we shouldn't be so selfish, that we should honor what the Lord wants. He saved us, hasn't he? He's placed us here, so we shouldn't always think about what we want, because that's rather selfish we should actually consider what's on the Lord's heart. What does the Lord want? The Lord needs a group of young overcomers. And you are all members of this group. 
You were all qualified to be the group of young overcomers who can turn this age. It's not impossible. In fact, it just requires your consecration. Next, not only are we consecrating ourselves to the Lord to be Nazarites, but we can't do it alone, right? It's difficult, if not impossible, to stand against the tide of the age by yourself. This is why you need spiritual companions. In Daniel's case, he had three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These three were companions of Daniel who enabled him to stand against the tide of this age. When Daniel needed help the most, when their lives are going to be lost, as we'll later cover in Daniel chapter 2, who did he turn to? In addition to turning to God, he had the opportunity to turn to the body. And in this case, it was his three companions. He was able to turn to his companions for fellowship and for prayer. Fellowship and prayer so that they could turn this age. So that they could stand together as one, as representatives on this earth, as dispensational instruments, as Nazarites, to overcome the tide of this age and to even turn this age. That's why our companions are so important. And our heart. What about our heart? In one of the Roman numerals, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what the dream was about that he had saw in his sleep. Not only did he not understand it, but he was so blinded, he lacked so much sight that he didn't even remember what the dream was about. You know, can you imagine sometimes you guys have a dream and you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I had this great dream, but I don't remember exactly what it was. I've had that many times. Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he had this dream. And it, in fact, this dream was about a great image, but he forgot and it troubled him so much because he knew that this dream had some sort of impact on the destiny of his government and even on himself, but he wasn't sure. He had this feeling. He didn't know what it was. And it was because he was so blinded. His heart did not match God's heart. If your heart matches God's heart, then you will be able to see what God's purpose is. So this is the third aspect under this Nazarite vow that we've talked about so far in this conference. We need to pray tonight in addition to consecrating ourselves to the Lord, in addition to praying to the Lord for spiritual companions, we also need to pray, Lord, make your heart's desire my heart's desire. I promise you, sisters, that if you pray this prayer every day on a regular basis, Lord, make your heart's desire my heart's desire, you will experience a wonderful transformation in your being that will compel you to love the Lord more, that will unveil you to see what God's heart's desire is on this earth today. Although tonight you might not see it all, you may somewhat have an understanding of the Nazarite vow of a dispensational instrument, and you're not sure, you're tepid, you're thinking possibly about consecrating yourself to be a dispensational instrument, but I guarantee you, the more you pray, Lord, make your heart's desire my heart's desire, the sooner you will come to consecrate yourself for the Lord's purpose on this earth. The sooner you will come to give yourself as a Nazarite. So what these three points lead to is our sight. Our vision is critical. If we don't have a vision that matches what God has laid out, 
then we can't see what God's heart's desire is. And that leads us to message three. Let's all read the title of message three together for those of you that have your outline in front of you. With a strong spirit. Ready? Go. Now this title is somewhat historical because we all know we're studying the book of Daniel, right? There's a devilish blinding that's going on in the book of Daniel that's very apparent to us if we've read Daniel chapter 2 and the rest of the chapters of Daniel. And we know uh, that there's been some sort of divine history that's hidden within human history and that Nebuchadnezzar has been blinded. He can't see it. Daniel has the vision. He can see it. But this also has relevance to us today, saints. There's a devilish blinding going on in the world today. And this devilish blinding is prohibiting us from fully giving ourselves to the Lord. This devilish blinding is unfortunately prohibiting us from seeing the divine history within the human history. And the divine history within the human history is that one day, sooner than later, the Lord's bride will be fully made ready. And the Lord will come back as a smiting stone and will crush the feet of the great image, which we'll see was what was part of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is the divine history within the human history. Human government will be no longer. This stone representing Christ and the overcoming bride will become a great mountain representing God's eternal kingdom on this earth. This is the divine history within the human history. Let's read Roman numeral one together. Nebuchadnezzar had a marvelous dream of a great human image. That dream should have impressed him deeply, but he forgot the dream because he did not have a heart for God's interest. Amen. Those of you who had an opportunity to read through the Bible verses today will have read through Daniel chapter two. And in Daniel chapter two, you see that Nebuchadnezzar had a marvelous dream. This dream in short, was a great image made of different types of precious metals, regular metals, and even clay. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this great image, and what else did he see? He saw a smiting stone crush this image. Crush this image at its feet. This representing, again, Christ and the overcoming bride crushing the image. And the image is nothing less than to the totality of human government as represented by four kingdoms, which we'll see in Roman numeral two. Now Nebuchadnezzar forgot this dream. He didn't understand this dream because he did not have a heart for God's interest. His heart did not match God's heart. So he did not remember this dream and he did not remember the significance of this dream. He wouldn't even have been able to interpret it if he remembered it. Let's read A together. Nebuchadnezzar's spirit. Now when Nebuchadnezzar awoke, he was deeply troubled. And immediately he asked the wise men of Chaldea, what was this dream that I had? And what was its significance? And of course their response was, because they're all frauds, they're all charlatans, they're wise men of idols, of nothing. They said, oh king, tell us the dream, then we'll tell you the interpretation. Because they had no idea what the dream was. They're, they were nothing special. 
But Nebuchadnezzar himself didn't even remember the dream. And he said, you know what my edict was. Tell me the dream, then tell me what it means. And they couldn't do it. So what did he say? He said, kill them. Kill them all. Kill all the wise men in the land. And this included Daniel and his three companions. So when Daniel heard about this, what did he do? Let's read letter B together. But Daniel... So Daniel knew that they were going to get killed, him and his three companions. And if Daniel was killed and his three companions, then the Lord would have no representatives on this earth to turn the tide of the age. Daniel may have known that. His three companions may have known that. So Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar and petitioned him and said, King, give me a brief period of time so that I can go out and determine what is this dream and what is its interpretation. So let's read... Wrote, uh, number one, under B, what did Daniel do? Daniel gathered his companions. So because Daniel's heart matched God's heart, God was able to speak to him and reveal to him the significance. I'm pointing to our heart for those of you on the side. God was able to reveal the significance of the dream to him because first and foremost, Daniel had consecrated himself to the Lord. He had given his entire being, as did his three companions. And so he was able to go to his spiritual companions. He was able to go to his companions and pray and seek fellowship. And God came in and answered their prayers. No doubt, all four of them were praying together and even separately in different quarters had they lived apart. But God came in and gave this vision to Daniel and spoke to him. Amen. Let's read two together. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel did not exalt himself. Rather, he blessed and exalted God. The first thing that Daniel did in speaking this dream and explaining its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, what he did was he exalted God. He praised God. Oh, praise you, God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. This is what Daniel did. He exalted God and praised God because he was a man of God. He was, he was a young person that was fully given and didn't rely on himself at all because if he relied on himself, he wouldn't know the dream. He wouldn't know the interpretation and he would be dead. Daniel and his companions were those who were Nazarites who had given themselves to make their heart's desire the same as God's heart's desire so that the age could be turned. Let's read Roman numeral 2 together. Amen. The contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream were a great human image signifying the aggregate of human government throughout history and its destiny. Now in letter A it reads, all human government has always done three things. These three things are rebel against God, exalt man, and worship idols. This is what human government does. Human government, as related directly to our culture today, still causes us, still causes us to rebel against God, to exalt man and worship idols. And to worship idols is to actually worship the devil 
who is behind these idols. Back then, it was a very clear cut. It's very clear what an idol is. Donnie mentioned, for some, an idol today could be a statue of Buddha. Back then, it was very clear cut. It was a large graven image. We all know the verse. We shouldn't bow before any graven image, right? There's no other God except our God. We shouldn't be bowing to anything made out of wood, anything bowing out of anything made of clay, porcelain, or metal. And so it was obvious when you read this, the Bible stories and the history. But what about today? What are the idols today? And many times you may have heard this, but it still is so subtle. Idols today are not as obvious as idols back then because Satan has intensified his attack on God's people. What are some idols that we struggle with today? Well, what's a definition of an idol today to us? A definition of an idol, as it relates to us today, could be anything that separates us from the enjoyment of Christ. That means anything that acts as a substitute for Christ, for our enjoyment of of Christ, for our praising of the Lord, anything that deadens our spirit and separates us and acts as a substitute. And tonight, during the course of the rest of our meeting, I would ask you, consider before yourselves, even during your personal prayer time, what's an idol that you have that you worship right now that might not be so obvious, but the Lord maybe has been touching you and has been working on you about this particular idol? What's an idol today? Running home from school so you can check the latest edition of Friends to your MySpace page? or reading a blog on Zanga? It seems harmless, right? You're just reading Zanga. What's so harmless? What's so harmful about that? MySpace, I got some music on there. It's not that bad. It's not like my brother who's playing Xbox 360 about shooting people and killing people, right? Well, Satan is subtle, sisters. He even uses things that look so harmless to encapsulate us, to capture us, to wrap us up and act as a substitute for Christ. And sooner than later, we find our love for the Lord waning, our participation in the meetings waning, our reading of the Bible waning, and our ability to consecrate ourselves to the Lord for His purpose non-existent. This is what idols do. I'm not saying that a blog is an idol in every person's case. That's just an example. Don't think that's the idol or the only idol. There are many idols out there. We need to be before the Lord and ask the Lord to shine on our hearts. Lord, reveal what idols do I worship. Lord, I don't want to worship these idols. I just want to worship you. Let's read uh, B, C, D, and E together, all together. In the great human image, the head of gold signifies Nebuchadnezzar. Great. Now let's turn to page 9 of your booklet, and let's read the Bible verses that support this. It's always good to go back to the Word of God. If you don't have a booklet, you can look in your Old Testament. It's Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 33. 
And this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and describing the dream, 31 through 33. Let's have the freshmen and sophomores stand up and read verse 31 and have the upperclassmen support them with strong amens at every punctuation and then have the upperclassmen read 32 and everyone on 33. Ready, underclassmen, sisters? You want to stand up? Don't be shy. Stand up and read with a strong spirit and do support them with strong amens. 31, sorry. Freshmen and sophomores, 31. Ready, go. Amen. 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 Now, upperclassmen, sisters, stand up and read 32. Amen. 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 Now everyone standing and reading 33. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Amen. Thank you. You can all sit down now. So here behind me we have a picture of this image. Can everyone see it? I'll turn it again. This image has a head of gold, which signifies Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, his kingdom. Then... The breast and the arms are comprised of silver, which signify the Medo-Persian Empire, which eventually overthrew Nebuchadnezzar. Then the abdomen and the thighs are made of bronze, which signify the Greek and Macedonian empires. Incidentally, how many of you are familiar with Alexander the Great? Do you guys know of him in history? Well, there's a story behind this. When he went to invade the land of Canaan, when he passed through in his pillaging and rampaging, the rabbis showed him this excerpt in Daniel and explained its interpretation to him and explained that this is him. This is where they are. And actually, he was flattered. So he had mercy on them. He showed some mercy. Moving on to the legs and the feet and the toes. The legs are comprised of iron, which signify the Roman Empire, and the ten toes are made of iron and clay representing the ten kings of the Roman Empire, okay? And this bottom portion, this Roman Empire, continues to influence us today. All these kingdoms, because they represent human government, Satan's control on this earth, unfortunately, still influence us today. This is something that needs to be smashed. All you sisters who want to participate in destroying this image from head to toe, say amen. amen. We want to participate as Nazarites, as overcoming ones, as dispensational instruments to be part of this smiting stone, to smash this image at its feet, to crush it and cause everything else to crumble and smash it and destroy it until there is nothing remaining, until it becomes like chaff, the Bible says, like dust. And when blows it away into oblivion, so that there is no longer any trace of this human government, of this great human image on this earth. Let's read letter F together. The culture of the world is an accumulation
Amen. Their culture still remains. What's critical here, sisters, is that we have a vision. And actually in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has another dream about this human image. Only in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, from his perspective, it was a great human image. It was majestic. It was splendor. This is his perspective. This is Satan's perspective of human government, of the world. That it's majestic. It's full of splendor. It's full of enjoyment. But actually, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has another dream. And he sees this same image only through the perspective of God. He's wearing the lenses of God and he sees this image as four horrendous beasts that are crushing and killing and trampling. This is what human government is. This is the vision, sisters, that we need to see. That human government is good for nothing. That it's evil. That it's full of destruction and mayhem. And that we need to be those who would see this so that we would be saved from human government. Meaning we would be saved from the world today. And we would see how evil, how vile, how, how pointless the world is. How it offers us nothing. But to be a Nazarite means everything. Amen. To consecrate ourselves to God. To search and to pray and to have spiritual companions. And to ask the Lord to make His heart's desire our heart's desire. Amen. Amen. Now, Brother Tom will take us through the last Roman numerals in this message. Hallelujah. Amen. Looks like an idol to me. Isn't that just a big idol? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. You know, as Brother Nikaya was telling us, he, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but because he had no heart for God's interests, he could not remember the dream. Isn't that amazing? Yet Daniel, he never had the dream, but he saw the vision, and he could interpret it. I find that amazing. You know, I think that what this means is, is that people that know the Lord and enjoy the Lord can explain a lot of things to people. You can explain why things happen to your friends. You understand why things are going on and why things happen the way they do. Tonight, I just would like to take a few minutes at the beginning to just fellowship with you a little bit about Daniel and his companions. I find these guys extremely interesting. I have no idea where they came from. You know, the children of Israel at this time, right before uh, they went into captivity in Babylon, was 606. They went into captivity at 606 B.C., okay? At that time... The children of Israel had become very degraded. Throughout, you read the Old Testament and the history, you'll find out what they did, the children of Israel always did, is they always turned to idols. They had this infatuation with idols and idol worship. Even at one point, uh, they were surrounded by enemies. And uh, the king who loved idols 
He called for the prophet. The prophet said, they're going to they're gonna wipe you out. And he said, uh, ask Jehovah what we should do. And Jehovah answered through the prophet and told him, go pray to your idols. See if they will rescue you. He said, you love idols? You go to your idols. Pray to them. See what they'll do for you. And then, you know, finally, at a point when God could not stomach that kind of idolatrous situation, he gave them back into Babylon the land of idols. You like idols? Okay, you can have idols until it comes out of your nostrils. You'll have idols everywhere. You'll go in the land of idols. That's what you'll do. Your whole being will be involved with idols. And this is uh, it's because God is a jealous God. He wants, he wants us to love him and to be so devoted to him. And so he hates the replacements. Now, uh, Brother Nikaya was talking about idols. I heard this definition one time, and I think it's a very good definition. Maybe it'd be good to write it down. An idol is everything that replaces Christ and usurps man. An idol has two functions. It replaces the Lord, and on the other hand, it takes over in your being. It has a power. Even tomorrow, we're going to see it's, it has a seduction because it wants to enslave everyone under its power, right? And so here you have three teenagers. You know, uh, Brother Nikhail mentioned this. You know, we were, we were looking at this. We were studying this. How do you find out how old Daniel was? And how do you find out when he was born and how old he was? And even those two cases where it mentions the word children, these children, they're like little kids. I'm wondering, they grew up in a nation that had turned away from God and turned to idols, yet somehow they stood against idols. I don't know how they did that. It must have been that they had some kind of realization that they were in captivity away from God's house, away from the good land, away from the city, the kingdom of God, the temple of God, and everything about God because of God's judgment. And the reason they were there was because of idols. And they, they realized, if we're going to ever get out of here, we have to get out of idols. We have, to, we have to get away from this. We have to be faithful. At this time, while Daniel and his companions were in Babylon, the brothers mentioned this this morning and tonight again, just would like to repeat something. The testimony of God had been on the earth had been completely destroyed. The temple was burned and destroyed. There was no ark. There was no house of God. There was no worship of God. All of God's people had either been killed or carried into captivity. The land was desolate. The city was destroyed. Everything was ruined. There was no kingdom of God. There was no house of God. And there was no, nobody on the good land, the land of Emmanuel. And so Satan... You know, uh, Donnie this morning could laugh 
Laugh at God. Ha ha. I won. The testimony is over. The house is gone. Everything is through. But actually, God had four. Four. Four teenage boys. That was his house. That was his kingdom. That was the land of Emmanuel at that time. God's testimony, his move on the earth, had narrowed down to a thin thread of four teenage boys. Imagine, would you, as God, be so comfortable to allow your testimony on the earth to be born on the shoulders of four teenage boys? Imagine. But because of these four teenage boys, God could boast to Satan, but I have them. They are my living testimony. They are the ark. They are the house. They are the kingdom. And they are the land. They are my testimony. To me, this means, sisters, this should fill every one of us with some hope and expectation. If the Lord could do it with them, he could do it with you. And he can do it with me. Tonight, we're going to reveal a little secret to you. We're going to show you how God does this. How God, how God gains this dispensational instrument. We're going to let you in on a marvelous secret. Okay? Well, while they're there at this time, we, uh, we did some study, and we found out in one of the life study messages, right at the time when the Babylonian Empire was over and the Medo-Persian Empire came, it was about 536. You see, this is 70 years. Okay? And it was right about this time, I think it was about 534, in one of those messages when Brother Lee said that Daniel was 87 at that time. So if Daniel was 87, I mean, Daniel was 87 at 534, then do the math. Add 87 to 534. Come on, you math... Geniuses, you could do that. You could probably do it in your head. 537 plus 87. Or 534 plus 87. Come on, come on, come on. Okay, 621. That would have been approximately when Daniel was born. And they went into captivity in 606, would have made him 15 years old. There's one other... One other source, we found out that there was a three-year discrepancy in this whole thing. So we're not sure. It may have been that he was 18, the three-year gap. That's why we said anywhere from 15 to 18 years old. And then, get this, he went into Nebuchadnezzar's three-year training, and he ate only vegetables for three years. And when they were done, they were ten times better smarter, stronger, healthier than everybody else. 
is, you know why? I, I love this. It's because God blessed them. God blessed them. Do you want to get, you want to get good grades? You become a Nazarite. And you come under a blessing. There's no guarantees here. Oh, I become a Nazarite and I want all A's. No motive at all. But you come under a blessing from God when you give yourself to the Lord. Because you know why? Now you become a person that God can entrust wisdom to and knowledge to because he knows he, you're going to use it for him. It's going to be useful in his hand. He can put money into your hand. He could put wealth and, and wisdom into your hand. Because why? Because you're going to use it for God's purpose. Because you're a Nazarite, not for your own satisfaction. So, <clears throat> Daniel and his companions were quite a group. Even as Brother Nikaya was speaking tonight, I was, I was impressed. As soon as the decree was written, Daniel gathered his companions together. They went and they prayed to seek mercy from God. Uh, I was also reminded uh, as Nikaya was speaking that because the testimony of God had been narrowed down to these four men, these four boys, I should say. See, you, you all think, I'm, I know you think this, so forgive me for, for accusing you of thinking this, but you know, always we think, well, the older ones, the, the stronger, faithful brothers, that they could be so useful. But actually, the older ones were not that faithful. It was the young ones that were. And the Lord is seeking young people just like this. But listen, because the testimony of God was now with four young boys, all of Satan's attacks were focused in on trying to kill them. To wipe out God's testimony. And you know what? They were okay with that. That was okay with them. First, he wanted to kill them because they didn't want to eat the idol sacrifices. They thought, you know, if we don't eat idol sacrifices, we're going to get skinny. The chief of the eunuchs is going to get in trouble. And all of them will get killed. Well, they were willing to risk that. Okay. If I die, I die. But I'm not going to the idols. So at the cost of their life, they wouldn't eat. And then it comes to this, interpreting the dream. The decree went out. The edict went out. Tell me what I dream. Tell me what it means. Or else you die. You can't do it? Okay. Then he, he said, okay, go kill them. So Daniel goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. We can do this. Already they were going out to find them and kill them. In chapter 3, we're going to find out again they try to kill them. Every time. Because the testimony of God was with these three young men. Satan's attacks were just poured out on them. But you know what? This is, this is wonderful. Because they didn't care. They didn't care about that. Satan lost all his power over them. It's only when you love your soul life that he has a grip on you. 
If you don't care, kill me. Okay, kill me. What are you going to do? Kill me twice? I mean, they tried to kill him seven, sevenfold times yet in chapter 3. We'll see that tomorrow. You go, okay, okay, we don't care. You know, at the end of the Bible, it tells us that they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their soul life unto the death. That's these guys. That's these guys. <clears throat> now, let's go on with the, uh, the outline. You know, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar was really uh, an egomaniac. When he, saw, when he heard this dream and he heard the interpretation of it, he was so uh, enthralled with him being the head of gold. You know, if the head is something, the whole thing is something. So it was really an image of him. He's the head, so he's the whole thing, right? So he was just, wow, that's me, that's me. But you know what? He missed a very important part. And that was, not only did he see the image, he also saw the destiny of the image. But the destiny of the image did not impress him at all. Do you know what the destiny of this image is? It's to become chaff, dust, blown until there is no trace of it left. Suppose someone came to you and told you your whole life, your whole life's work, everything you've given yourself to is going to be blown away like dust. There will be nothing left. It will be a waste. You'd be offended. What do you mean? I help, good, I help people. I do nice things. I'm a good person. I do the best I can. You know, I, I'm, I try. Dust. Absolutely nothing but dust. Well, the dream goes on that there is a stone. I don't know how to draw the stone. Maybe we'll draw it over here. Well, let me, let me draw it over here. We'll have it coming from the right. Is it okay if I erase some of this? Now, our, our guy down here doesn't have ten toes. Okay? You've got to give ten toes. You know why the ten toes are? These are the ten kings of Antichrist. It's very important. <clears throat> the feet is iron and clay mixed. This is the Roman Empire. And as, as we saw, every human government learns from and picks up something from the previous uh, empire. And every empire becomes an accumulation of all the empires. The culture, the spirit, and the uh, laws and even the politics of government is passed on and on and on. Now, when you get to the toes or the feet with iron and clay mixed, this is iron and clay means that there's some part is really hard and some part is soft. In the footnotes in Daniel, it points out that it's a mixture of autocracy and democracy. Now, guess which one is which? Autocracy is the iron. Democracy is the clay. It's soft. You know, we all like democracies. Maybe we think that's 
you know what? It's all here. It's all here. And it's all over. It's all dust. The dream prophesies about this rock. I don't know how to draw a rock. But anyway, there's a rock, a stone, huh? Cut out without hands. And it's coming to crush the image on the feet. It's aimed for the toes. And when it hits the toes, the whole image becomes dust and chaff, and it blows away into nothing. Okay, let's read the, uh, let's read the uh, outline. Roman 3, together. The destiny... The stone is Christ. As the stone that will crush the entire human government of mankind, Christ was not cut with human hands. He was cut by God through his crucifixion and resurrection. Do you see that? Maybe this uh, all is kind of uh, a very mysterious thing. I, I just, I love this, this uh, I told some sisters at dinner, this is my favorite uh, chapter in the whole book of Daniel. This is my favorite chapter because you see, the, you see the destiny of the world and you see the destiny of Christ. Here you have Christ and here you have the world. And Christ is coming. And he's going to land on Antichrist and his ten kings. That's what's next. The next thing that's going to happen, according to the Bible and prophecies, well, is the stone. So the question is, how do I become part of that stone? This is a question every one of us should be asking. Not how do I get into this? You want to run for office? You want to become somebody great in this world? You want to become the next American Idol? You want to become a superstar? Basketball, football, baseball? No, you're all sisters. Rock star. What is there? There's nothing. It all ends up as dust. But this, this stone the Bible tells us, becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. Let's keep reading. Uh, B. <clears throat> Go ahead, read it. At his appearing... Okay, so this stone is Christ and the bride. Did you know that? This is not the individual Christ. This stone is not the individual Christ. This stone is the corporate Christ. 
Christ and His bride. You know, in marriage, two become one. And when Christ marries His bride, two become one. Even we become parts of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. We are members of Christ. We are the increase of Christ, even the enlargement of Christ. Think about this for a minute. How do we become parts of Christ? How do we become part of this stone that becomes a mountain and fills up the whole earth? That mountain is the kingdom of God. Do you know what? That stone becoming a mountain and filling the whole earth is the answer to the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's when it happens. That's when it happens. That's when that prayer gets answered. So, let's keep reading. See, when Christ comes back as the stone, Let's get out our verse sheet, go back to page number 8. I'm sorry, page 9. Let's read verse 44 and 45 together, all right? And in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will raise up a kingdom... Inasmuch as you saw that out of the mountain dream is certain. The fulfillment, interpretation is trustworthy. I would like to, uh, maybe if you have your Bibles, we could look up a verse in Mark chapter 4. Because this little portion, three or four verses in Mark chapter 4, show how the stone becomes the mountain. I believe this is, uh, very, should be very helpful to us. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29. If you don't have it, let me, let me read it to you. Verse 26. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man cast seed on the earth, 
and sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and lengthens, how he does not know. Okay, wait, let's, let's don't go on yet. So is the kingdom of God. As if a man cast seed on the earth. That man is Christ. And the kingdom of God was sown as a seed. You have to realize this. The kingdom of God is a seed. It's like we got the, sto- the seed of the stone sown into our being. When we believed into the Lord and when we received the Lord, we received this seed. Then it says, and he goes and he sleeps and he rises day and night. It doesn't mean the Lord is sleeping. What it means, though, is this, is that he has the full confidence in the seed. He doesn't have to stress over the seed or work on it, pull it up. Come on, come on. Anyone that did that would kill the seed, you know, kill the plant. But he trusts in the life of that seed, that that seed will produce what it is. Now, we have received the seed of Christ into us. And that seed is growing, just like that song we were enjoying. It's just by growth, the normal way. The kingdom of God is a seed sown into us, growing into a mountain that's going to fill the whole earth. We should be comforted by this. Sisters, as we make, as we realize that at the end of this age, God needs men, men who turn the age. We have to find out, we have to discover what is it that he needs from us? Does he need our effort? No. Does he need our, 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 all our natural strength? No. He needs us to give him the ground in us so that he can grow in us to become such a mountain and to become such a stone. That's the cooperation we can give him. Because we can't do this. We're being called to do something we cannot do and to become and to be something we cannot be. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Many of us think that when we consecrate, we promise God. I promise to be good. I promise to really try. This time I'm really going to try. This is our thought. Consecration is not that. This voluntary consecration involves a decision. It involves a choice. Human beings have been especially blessed by God and endowed by God with the freedom to choose. They can choose God. They can choose Satan. God has given man the choice. And God has been waiting this whole time for man to choose him. From the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there was two trees symbolizing two sources. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil resulting in death and the tree of life resulting in life. 
and man was there in the middle of this triangular situation, and he had to choose. He had to choose. <clears throat> you think, well, maybe I'm, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to wait and see. Well, we think, you know what? If you don't choose, that's a choice. Everyone has to choose. And so the choice is this. Once we make our, our choice, this is what Daniel and his companions did. It said they set their heart. That means they decided. Our decisions mean something. You don't understand. A decision means something. Sometimes we decide to follow the Lord or decide to give ourselves to the Lord, and then the next day we don't feel very good. We feel bad or we feel depressed. And then Satan says, see, look at you. Look what happened to you. You said you're for the Lord, but look at you now. The question is not how you feel. The question is, did your decision change yet? Decision did not change. A decision becomes incredibly powerful in the hand of God. So what is this? Let's read on in Mark chapter 4. The earth bears fruit by itself. First a blade, then an ear, then full grain in the ear. But when the fruit is ripe, immediately he sends forth the sickle because the harvest has come. Okay, the earth there is, the, is our heart. You know, uh, Brother Nikayo had a diagram up that showed the heart. The human heart is where we give God our cooperation. That is what we turn to Him, that's what we open to Him, and that's what we decide. Then what happens is, is that this stone, as a seed, begins to grow in our heart. It says, it, it, it says the earth bears fruit by itself. That means it bears fruit spontaneously. What you're going to see is this. Christ is really the only Nazarite. He is really the only Nazarite. There's only one, and it's Christ. And now the seed of Christ is growing in us. First, a sprout. You know how you're going to know that you're a Nazarite? Is first we make the consecration. Then the heart begins to grow. There'll be a sprout of Nazarite vow in you. It'll, it'll come up like a sprout. It won't come up like a big tree real fast. This thing has got to grow in you. It's got to develop in you. This is where dispensational instruments come from. Comes from normal growth, day-by-day -day growth, up and down lives. And then it says, first a blade, then an ear, then full grain in the ear. But when the fruit is ripe, then he immediately sends forth the sickle because the harvest has come. And that's this. I love this. I love this because you know what? Because we can't do this. 
but does that mean it, can't, it doesn't need to be done? No, it has to be done. We agree with it. It has to be done. And yes, the Lord needs people, men on the earth that will give him the cooperation. A lot of us, we can't reconcile this. Not being able to do it, yet it's still being, needing to be done. This is the Christian life. The last thing I would like to say, then I'll stop. Well, we've got to finish reading the outline. Is in the title of the message, and uh, Nikaya was going over this, and I thought, you know, I wonder if I should just say something about this. And uh, it's about the uh, divine history within the human history. The devilish blinding that prevents people from seeing the divine history within the human history. <clears throat> if all the papers, all the news, you know, all the cable channels are completely involved with the human history, whether it's uh, the Super Bowl, who won the Super Bowl, who won American Idol, who won the election, you know, it's all, it's all about people. It exalts man rebels against God, and it always is looking for another idol to worship. That is human history. And this is kind of the physical realm where we live. You go onto your campus, that's the human history. It's all that you see. It's all that you touch. It's all that you interact. It's what's going on. It's what's happening here, what's happening there. But do you see, do you have the eyes to see the divine history what is going on in God's economy while all this mess is going on? Do you see the growth of the seed? Do you see this mysterious thing transpiring? While this human history is going on, something else is going on. While this image is being put together, a stone is forming. Nobody sees the stone. All they see is the image. They're completely involved with the image. They love the image. They would like to be part of that image. But this, this stone is taking shape. It's getting big. It's becoming a mountain. It's going to fill the earth. Nobody sees it. It's happening on your campus. It's happening in your city. It's happening while nobody is watching. What is happening is that you're becoming a God-man. And nobody can tell. You look like an ordinary person. You walk on campus. You go home. You study. You try your best to get good grades. You call on the Lord when you have a tough time. You open to the Lord because it's not easy. And you struggle. And you fight. You fail. But you get back up because you have companions. And so this whole divine history is going on completely below the radar. Nobody can see it. Nobody appreciates it. Nobody cares about it. But those people who are becoming a stone know what's going on. They love it. They stand with it. They feed it. They live for it. They're all together about that. They're not about the world. Hallelujah. That's what, I, that's what I'm about. That's what I'm for. I love to, uh, to be with you, to see you. I, I've been watching, uh, you know, uh, somebody, who was it? Uh, oh, uh, testimony this afternoon said that 
uh, I don't know how many decades ago. Uh, she came here, and I was speaking here uh, back then. Well, you know what? I've, I've been able to watch a lot of the young people grow up here. It, it's really awesome because I'm watching the seed grow, and I'm watching this mountain come into being. Now, this, this part is not real important, but I think you might be interested to know this. Because I asked the question, where does this stone come from? This stone was raptured three and a half years earlier. To the throne of God. I mentioned this yesterday. 144,000 overcomers, living overcomers. This is prophesied in Revelation 14. Actually, that's the next thing to happen right here. 144,000 raptured to the throne of God. Revelation 14. Now, who are they? That's the question. These are called first fruits. First fruits. That means they were harvested first. Do you know why? Because they ripened first. That's how I know that Mark 4 is the way. It's a matter of growth and normal growth and harvest, okay? So they're raptured. There's 144,000 of them. They are the bride of Christ. They're also the overcomers. All the same. They are the vital groups. They are the Zion within Jerusalem. They are the body of Christ. These are all the designations for what makes up this stone. Praise the Lord. We could be part of this. I like this one designation, the vital groups, because Daniel and his companions, it said on the outline, they're a real vital group. Well, Tonight, we want to leave a little more time for some sharing. You know, this, this afternoon, the sharing was so good and so very helpful. I hope that some of you would, would uh, uh, speak something. So I think the brothers will set up the mic right here where we had it this afternoon and try your best to share something as a, uh, a, a response to this kind of fellowship. Amen. How about let's pray. Pray with our neighbor for a minute. Lord, grow in me. Roman 4. The great human image will be replaced with the great Stone into a great mountain signifies the bride is the increase of Christ as the bridegroom. The stone is Christ as the center, the centrality of God's move. And the mountain is the Christ as the circumference. He is the church and also the kingdom. He, with his increase, is the great mountain, fills the whole earth.
Amen. Okay. You know, uh, I also, I forgot to tell you one other thing. In Daniel chapter 2, this is what it looks like. It's a stone. But its fulfillment is in Revelation chapter 19. You have to read the verses on your verse sheet. It is Christ and his bride, which is an army. Imagine that. You go on your honeymoon to war. After the Lord marries his bride, then he and his bride come to defeat Antichrist and tread the winepress of the wrath of God. Anyway, that's fulfilled in Revelation 19. It's great. Oh, man. I want to be there. We have to pray this. Lord, make me part of this smashing stone. Whatever it takes. You know, it's not a small thing to come up to this mic and even read off a consecration. Do you think God doesn't listen to that? He counts that.